Hello everyone and welcome to the lecture for English 206 in spring semester 2021. This is week two, the Civil War. As always, you can find the PDF of the lecture slides to accompany this lecture along with the readings and assignments for this week in the Canvas module. So today we're going to talk about the Civil War and the literature that we read for today was written uh, around and often about, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, uh, the events of the Civil War, which lasted from 1861 to 1865, as well as sort of events leading up to it. So if you look on slide three here, I've chosen a photograph uh, for its sort of local significance. This is a picture of Union engineers outside of Petersburg, Virginia. As you guys probably know, uh, Virginia was not a Union state. It was, in fact, a member of the Confederacy. The Confederate capital was Richmond. Uh, however, as the Confederacy lost the war, it lost control of Richmond and it lost control of Petersburg in a very long uh, siege process. If you're interested in that, I, again, strongly encourage you to, uh, to take one of the excellent American history courses at RBC. So I've given you this image and I've also given you a quotation uh, which was written by a British journalist, William Russell, published in the London Times, uh, sort of about the start of the uh, Civil War. Uh, and he said, so short-lived has been the American Union that men who saw it rise may live to see it fall. And if you guys think back into your sort of understanding of American history, uh, the excuse me, the Declaration of Independence is in the 1770s. The actual formation of what we know as the United States happened decades after that. So um, the Constitution, as we understand it, came about at the very end of the 18th century. That would be the 1700s. So this is only uh, 60 or so, a little more than 60 years later. So it is absolutely possible for someone's lifespan to encompass the beginning of the United States and what threatened to be the end of it. At the time when the war began, neither side thought that it was going to be very long or very troublesome. Uh, in the beginning, both sides thought it would take about 90 days. In fact, it took four years. The war exposed some deep schisms in the American society. It's really interesting. Um, you can see the language change during and after the war. And sometimes that the way language changes reveals a kind of unity that wasn't there before. For example, uh, before the Civil War, people used to say the United States are. Now, after the war, they say the United States is. You can see the emphasis. The United States are puts the emphasis on a collection of states that are all individuals. Uh, when we say the United States is, it, we refer to the United States as a kind of whole. Um, and that might have been the result of the war, but as it started, we saw not so much this idea of one nation unified, but rather a lot of disparate groups within the same sort of governmental structure, all with very different ideas about who it was for and how it should work. So I say the Civil War exposed deep schisms. I don't just mean between North and South, Confederate and Union, but I mean also that we want to think about uh, things along lines of race, 
class, and gender. Another thing that the war did was touched off a wave of technological development. Uh, in 1862, for example, there were 240 patents for military inventions. The Civil War also uh, brought about the, the idea of modern submarine warfare, which sort of made all the other world's navies obsolete. And I'm bringing this up because it's really interesting, but because both of the points on this slide, on slide four here, are things that we will see in the literature, not just of this period, but of the periods that follow it. That these issues that are brought to the fore here had been around before and will be around uh, after. When, when I say these issues, I mean the divides in American society, and I mean this sort of flip side to American innovation and this obsession um, commitment to inventing new things and to um, to development and progress is that uh, that development and progress is not always used for peaceful or altruistic endeavors and again you'll see more of this as we go forward in this class at the beginning of the Civil War, there were fewer than 17,000 U.S. soldiers, and only two of the U.S. generals had ever led armies on the battlefield. Uh, Lincoln's first call, President Lincoln's first call, was for 75,000 volunteers. He got them easily. The way companies were formed, and we talked about this a little bit last week, um, but it's worth pointing out again, all the soldiers from a single town or neighborhood, uh, if you're from a city, would be in the same unit. So you want to think about what effect that would have. And basically, your units lived and died together, which means whole towns could and did lose their whole populations. Uh, and it also meant that for these people, for these units, they sort of were away but not away. They traveled with their um, the people they knew, with their with their neighbors, with their families, for a time, um, at least. Recruiting also went very well in the South. Over a third of the recruits who turned up to, for the Confederate Army uh, were initially turned away. At the outset of the war, it looked like there were very long odds for the Confederacy. The North had almost 21 million people. The South had 9 million. And of that 9 million, a little over 4 million were slaves. All of the industry and manufacturing done in the South didn't equal a quarter of that was done of that which was done in New York State alone. So the way the United States had been structured, the northern states are heavily industrialized. They're where uh, production mechanization takes place. The southern states are agriculturally based, cotton, tobacco, uh, and instead of a factory labor system, most of that work is done uh, through slave labor um, and through agricultural labor. So there isn't the same level of industry and manufacturing. In fact, it's not even really comparable. And that becomes an issue because in times of war, manufacturing is often, and in this case absolutely was, turned to making weapons of war. So the, the Union had an advantage there. The Confederacy had some advantages of its own. For one, they had England support, if not outright endorsement. Uh, the United States, as a young country, was not a superpower. And it was sort of, if not entirely beholden to, at least influenced by its European neighbors. And remember, uh, England had always had an interesting relationship with its former colonies. Um, but 
the south the southern states are culturally closer to england this is where most um english settlers who were still in favor with english culture you get the puritans settling to the north you get a lot of um waves of immigrants from other parts of europe in northern states and in southern states like virginia georgia etc you get uh sort of english the remnants of the english uh, aristocracy upper classes so um and English aristocrats were also heavily invested in cotton industry. So you have that historical tie, you have that sort of cultural tie, um, and you have the tacit, if not explicit, support of England, which uh, means no help will be given to the United States, to the Union, um, against the Confederacy. And the very real possibility is that England's help, at least at the beginning of the war, was thought to be something that the Confederacy might be able to lobby for or count on. Uh, the Confederacy also had Robert E. Lee uh, and other generals and politicians who defected from the U.S. government. The culture of the United States at the time was that military, sort of privileged military service in southern states. So a lot of the United States' best or sort of most highly trained military personnel uh, left the Union to go back to their home states in the south. And even though Robert E. Lee didn't think secession was a particularly good idea, who was widely regarded as the most talented man in the U.S. Army and became sort of one of the best, if not the best, generals in the Confederacy. Before he decided to leave, before he chose his home state, Virginia, over the United States, uh, he was actually offered command of the Union Army, and he didn't obviously didn't take it. The drain of personnel who'd formerly belonged to the U.S. military was also mirrored in the politicians who'd formerly been part formerly been part of the U.S. government. In fact, Jefferson Davis, who became the first and only president of the Confederacy, had been a senator from Mississippi. So when the Confederacy seceded, they took with them a large part of the framework of the United States government. It didn't take long for the war to expose some distinct class divides. One of the most common sort of descriptions of the war on both sides, Union and Confederate, uh, is this quote, rich, rich man's war, poor man's fight. So after initial enthusiasm, things got much darker uh, as the war ground on, as more people were lost, as that sort of technological edge made more and more deadly uh, the possibilities of combat. We talk about things like uh, better guns that shot faster, killed farther, uh, bullets, the mini ball that uh, were painful, but much more painful, much more uh, able to spread sepsis and disease, meaning more death. As war went on, uh, disease ran rampant, killed more people than the battles did. Um, privation, starvation, terrible conditions. As the reality of war set in, and as people went for longer and longer without the support of and being able to support their families, things got less, uh, got darker, less enthusiastic. In fact, the Confederacy instituted the first ever draft in America. Draft is compulsory service. Uh, men with 20 slaves were exempt. Most Southerners didn't own slaves, but you can see the privilege here. So if you don't own slaves, you still have to fight. In the Union, you could pay enough of a fee to have someone else take your place. So again, there's a class hierarchy here. If you have enough money, you don't have to fight. 
and that's true on both sides of the war. So you can see these economic lines are very clearly delineated, and that divide between the rich and the poor, the political uh, and ideological distinctions between those two classes, again, on both sides, is something that's not going to go away at the end of the war. In fact, it's only going to intensify. We should also talk about the fate of Black Americans um, during this time period. At the beginning, slaves who tried to escape to the Union Army were actually returned to their masters as the uh, initial argument on both sides for why the war was being fought was over the idea of succession, that the southern states didn't have the right to leave the Union. Uh, now, that was, at best, a thinly veiled pretext. The only state's right that really mattered um, in the long run was the right to own slaves, which the southern states, which the Confederacy believed deeply in, uh, several state constitutions and the sort of founding charter of the Confederacy held that right and the right of white supremacy, as they phrased it, to be paramount, to be foundational to who they were. But the language they used couched it in the idea of rights rather than this specific issue. So for a while, the Union went along with that pretext to a certain extent, and they returned uh, freed slaves who tried to escape to the Union Army to their masters. The person who changed this policy was not Abraham Lincoln. It was General Benjamin Butler from Massachusetts who argued, uh, who was and who had abolitionist sympathies, and argued uh, he found a sort of legal pretext. He said, slaves are contraband of war, which uh, still treated black Americans as uh, property, as, as chattel, as things that could be appropriated. But he was able to use those legal protections to, to at least get um, to, to take in and protect uh, former slaves. Those former slaves still had to lobby for the right to join the Union Army. This changed over the course of the war as anti-slavery sentiment became more and more mainstream in uh, Northern culture. And as it became more and more fundamental to how the people fighting the war uh, explicitly as well as implicitly saw their participation in it. So in June of 1862, uh, Congress forbade the army to return any slaves who had escaped to them. Uh, and in 1863, Lincoln released the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed slaves uh, held by the Confederacy. After He did this after the Battle of Antietam. He had, it would, had been pre-drafted, uh, but his political advisors uh, wanted him to wait until uh, a battle had been won in order for the optics to be better. It freed all the slaves currently held by states in rebellion against the Union. Uh, and it took effect January 1st, 1863. So technically, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't end slavery in the United States. It ended slavery in those states that were currently rebelling against the Union. That, that turned out to be all of the states with slaves. Well, okay. The Emancipation Proclamation also had some significant effects on the rest of the world. Uh, the optics changed. So England, which had been 
deeply sympathetic to the Confederates uh, because, again, of those cultural ties uh, and France which also may have been tempted, wouldn't side against a United States that publicly opposed slavery. So uh, the Confederate hopes of aid from that quarter essentially vanished because it would be a PR nightmare uh, for those countries. It gave a kind of higher calling to the war. Again, many people already uh, had, many people had gone into the war explicitly with this understanding and many people had called for the war abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, um, for example, who wanted explicitly the end of slavery. Uh, now, with the Emancipation Proclamation, you can see that as marking and also pushing along the, uh, the, the shift in focus so that this is not just implicitly, but now explicitly the point. Uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation, black soldiers were allowed to fight in the Union Army military, they were in their own segregated regiments. 85% uh, of the eligible population of black men signed on to the U.S. Army. They had white officers, they were rarely promoted, and they had to wait years to receive the medals that they'd earned in combat. And when I say years, I mean like 30 or 40 years. So it wasn't instant equality. And yet you had such a high percentage of uh, volunteers, of people wanting to fight. Um, there was also a backlash against the Emancipation Proclamation in the North. That's where we get the term copperheads. Uh, they used to use copper pennies as their candy slogan, who were against war and fleeing the slaves. They basically argued, not our problem. What was wrong with the status quo? We were happier then. We shouldn't meddle. Um, that particular movement never really went away. But the uh, enthusiasm and the sort of tide of public opinion definitely shifted uh, toward the anti-slavery, toward the abolitionist cause. As I mentioned before, the fighting was pretty brutal, but uh, diseased, killed more than two times, uh, two times the number of those who fell in battle. Uh, and both armies, had, the armies on both sides, had really high attrition rates. Uh, in late January of 1863, a quarter of the Union Army was absent without leave. People just gone home, uh, ran away, couldn't take it anymore. By the end of 1863, uh, two-fifths of the Confederate Army was gone uh, without notice. Also, it should be pointed out that there was sort of shifting boundaries in loyalty. For example, by the end of the war, every single one of 11 Confederate states, except for South Carolina, had sent regiments to fight for the North. So the states may have made for easy delineations, but especially in states along the sort of border of the Confederacy in the United States, there was a lot of um, plasticity and loyalty. There were a lot of Unionists uh, trapped behind Southern lines, just as there were a fair number of uh, secessionist sympathizers in the North. So it's a complicated war. It exposures these, exposes these fissures, these fault lines in society. Uh, it makes, over the, over the course of the war, it makes people think about, confront, uh, and be sort of explicit about their thoughts, feelings, beliefs about slavery. Okay, so you might be wondering, here we are, almost 20 minutes into this lecture, lecture and it's been very history-focused. Uh, so why? Why so much history for a literature class? 
The answer to that has a lot to do with why we study literature in the first place. What is the point of taking a class in American literature from the Civil War to the present day? Why organize a class in terms of time periods at all? To answer that question briefly, because again, I know we don't have all day, I want to talk about what it is that literary theorists, that people who study literature actually do. Uh, and in brief, we think about what can be learned from literature and how we want to see and what we want to get from the text that we look at. And there's no one right answer to this, uh, but there are a number of different approaches and we call these approaches sort of theories. Um, so a very basic way to think about literary theory and this definition is available for you, comes from the Purdue School of, um, from the Purdue OWL, which is a great writing resource and also outlines some of these things. So but on slide 12, talking about literary theory, uh, you can think about literary theory as a kind of lens that um, critics, literary critics, literary scholars use to talk about texts. Uh, these lenses let critics consider text, work of art is uh, the term they're using in this definition, but text, based on certain assumptions within that school of theory. So the different lenses allow critics to focus on particular aspects of a work uh, and sort of gives them a toolkit for looking at them. So depending on what sort of theoretical lens you're using, you see different things in different texts. Um, so for example, if a critic is working with Marxist theories, Marxist theories are really interested in uh, economic production, in class, in the way that structures uh, the way texts are produced, who consumes them, and what they argue for. Uh, for example, here we go, we can use their example. If a critic is working with certain Marxist theories, he or she might focus on how the characters in a story interact based on their economic situation. If a critic is working with post-colonial theories, they might consider the same story, but look at how characters from colonial powers uh, treat characters from, say, Africa or the Caribbean. So post-colonial studies looks at that kind of specific historical lens. And one of the fun things about English, about my discipline, is that uh, for any English professor you have, they will be more inclined to, say, perhaps work with one or two of these lenses. We're trained to work with all of them. But we all have sort of natural interests uh, and proclivities and expertises. So for example, if you're taking one of Professor Addington's classes, you probably get a lot of exposure to, exposure to post-colonial theory because this is the sort of literature uh, and, and lens that he works with. Professor Earnhardt, on the other hand, tends to be much more of a sort of formalist critic. He reads for aesthetics. Uh, he thinks about things in, in di very different terms. My training is in new historicism and it's close related, closely related field cultural studies. And that's true of a lot of Americanists, which is what I am. Americanists focus on American literature. So, if you're going to study American literature, and you are, because you're here in this class, uh, you want to be familiar. You want to sort of learn the tenets of new historicism. And that's what we're going to do here. So if you look at slide 13, you can see a brief overview of what exactly new historicism is. And we'll talk about how you apply a new historical lens to a text. But if we're going to boil it down, basically, Every work is a product of the historic moment that created it. 
So new historicism is different, different from history in that it's a different kind of perspective. A historian asks questions like, what happened and what does that event tell us about history? A new historicist is more interested in the interpretation of events. Uh, how has the event been interpreted? What do those interpretations tell us about the interpreters? So we think about every work, um, every piece of literature, for example, as a way of understanding not just the thing that happened, but how the people who saw the thing and described the thing, what their, their sort of procedures, their ideas, their mechanisms in the description, what they tell us about who they were and what they valued, and also what our interpretations, what the way we read text, the way we react to other people's readings of text, the way we react to uh, things written long ago, uh, tells us about who we are as critics and as readers. So new historicists don't believe in an idea of looking at history objectively. Instead, we interpret events as products of time and culture. So all works created and all interpretation of those works is subjective, meaning it's influenced by the dynamics around who, what, where, why, and the sort of when of its production. So if you look at the world this way, and if you look at text this way, you're always looking at the symbiotic relationship, what a work can tell us about the time it was created in, uh, and also what the time it is created in can tell us about the work and what our reactions to that work tell us about our own moment and our own preconceptions. So we 21st century readers often have very different reactions uh, to texts that 19th century readers would have. We find some things objectionable, uh, whereas some things still ring true. For example, did you guys know that in the original version of Little Snow White, the Snow White story that was written down by the Brothers Grimm, that would eventually, you know, sort of go on through uh, American pop culture, Western pop culture, to, to, through several Disney movies, uh, TV show adaptations, etc. Did you know that in that original story, she's seven years old? And that includes when she, she's seven, she's a seven-year-old child when she gets kicked out. She's a seven-year-old child when she has to get a job, keeping house full-time for the dwarves. And she is apparently a seven-year-old child when she gets married. Now, 21st century readers find that disturbing. So uh, when you look at Snow White uh, in that story, in that context, you get a different, uh, you get a sense of the different perceptions of childhood, of the boundaries between childhood, adulthood, and the situations that we consider appropriate for them. So you could look at that initial little Snow White and say this tells us something about how people in the early 19th century uh, viewed childhood or the lack of a need of child, or, and both, you could look at the way our adaptations of the story um, in the 20th, 21st century make Snow White uh, a young adult rather than a child by the time she's uh, getting a full-time job and uh, finding a romantic partner. So new historicism is about the relationship of text and context. And so we're always thinking about what we can learn from a text and how what we know about a time period can help us understand a text. And through that relationship, what we can understand about what has changed and what hasn't uh, to in the moment that we're inhabiting as, as critics and as readers. So slide 14 has a list of questions, again, 
we can thank the Purdue Owl for putting these together. They are fantastic. That uh, new historicists tend to ask about specific works. And don't worry, I'm not going to recite them all for you here. But take a moment, look through them, because these are, these and questions like these are the ones that can sort of help us to understand, to, to work toward the kind of information and understanding that we want in order to sort of read a text through a new critical lens. So in order to understand that relationship between text and context. So again, helpful list of questions, slide 14. Make sure you check it out. Okay, so with that sort of context in mind, with the idea of a sort of new critical lens through which to uh, look at our text for this semester, I'd like to now start talking about uh, some of the texts and context that you read for today. So let's see uh, what we can do. Now, some of the texts I asked you to read for this week uh, have to do with precursors to the Civil War. So events um, and, and sort of writing about those events or writing influenced by those events that led up to the Civil War. And so in particular, I asked you to look at texts relating to these ideas of slavery and states' rights uh, and a few to a sort of uh, concrete historical incident that represented a kind of boiling over of ideas about um, those concepts, and that's the attack on Harper's Ferry by John Brown. If you haven't already, please make sure that you've watched the short video clip uh, called The Civil War All Night Forever. This comes from the same documentary series that I showed you a clip from last week. Uh, it covers the experience of slavery in 19th century America. Brief warning, uh, this clip includes graphic imagery and language. While I didn't ask you to read this text specifically, I wanted to start um, this discussion of sort of context and precursors to the Civil War uh, and the texts that reflect that with a brief excerpt from one of the most powerful um, essays, speeches, that's been transcribed as an essay of the uh, antebellum. Antebellum is the time period leading up to the Civil War of the sort of antebellum abolitionist movement. And that's the speech called What to a Slave is the Fourth of July by Frederick Douglass uh, that was originally given in 1852. Frederick Douglass um, was a prominent abolitionist, uh, escaped from slavery uh, on his own as a young man, and who dedicated his life to uh, first to the abolition of slavery and then to the cause of um, black experience and life in the United States. Thereafter, he has a long, rich, uh, and varied career. And he is among the most sort of compelling and talented writers and orators of the 19th century. So his words really bring to life um, a lot of the rhetoric, um, the argument, and the emotion of the time period, which is pretty impressive uh, under any circumstances, and even more so when you consider how he's self-taught. So. All right, so I'm, give, I'm giving you this brief excerpt from the speech with a recommendation that in your boundless free time, I know, but if you had boundless free time or interest in the subject, uh, the speech is about 20 pages long. It's well worth a read. That said, we'll just look at this one 
excerpt, uh, which I like because I think it right it sums up uh, nicely the hypocrisy uh, in the sort of essence of um, the rhetoric and the sort of idealization of the uh, what the United States was. Uh, all men are created equal. It's a familiar phrase, right? And this is the rhetoric that uh, actually a lot of southern states, uh, secessionist movements, drew on this idea that they had the right to be free of tyranny. Uh, they used a lot of revolutionary rhetoric to paint the United States, the Union, as a kind of second uh, English empire. Uh, but the essence of the right to freedom, as Douglas points out, is the right to equality. And he wants people to understand that that equality, while enshrined in the Constitution, isn't enshrined in, that in the Constitution for everyone. So he says, your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You, must you may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. So Douglas's point here and at other places in the speech is that the rhetoric through which the United States understands itself as uh, liberty and justice for all is not the reality for the enslaved people who uh, live within it and who the Constitution itself does not count as an equal or a sovereign human being. So Douglas gave the speech in 1852, and you can see the kind of tension that exists between rhetoric, between idealized version of what uh, the United States was, the dream of what the United States was and should be as sort of set forth, and the reality of how it worked for, um, for everyone, or not everyone. So the thing I asked you to read by Frederick Douglass is shorter, comes a little bit later, and it's on a similar theme, uh, Douglass talking about what it will take to preserve the Union. And he's blunt here in, this is slide 19, of giving you an excerpt of the, of the reading. Says what disturbs, divides, and threatens to bring on civil war and to break up and ruin this country is slavery. Who but one morally blind can fail to see it, and who but a moral coward can hesitate to declare it? Fifteen states are bent upon the ascendancy and endless perpetuation of this system of immeasurable wickedness and numberless crimes, and are determined either to make it the law of the whole country or destroy the government. Against this inhuman and monstrous purpose are arraigned the enlightened of the age, checking and overthrowing tyranny, liberating the bondman from his chains in all quarters of the globe, and extending constitutional liberty to long-oppressed nationalities. Against it are the insensitive, instinctive sentiments of humanity, shuddering at the thought of chattelized humanity. Against it are the eternal laws of liberty, goodness, justice, and progress, dispelling the darkness of barbarism, exposing the hollowness of a corrupt priesthood, 
under the sanction of whose dark memories all the hell-black crimes of human bondage have found in this country their greatest security. Against it are the ever-increasing triumphs in the arts of civilization, reducing the importance of mere brute force to nothing in comparison with intellectual power. Against it are all the promptings, aspirations, convictions, and sympathies of unperverted human nature, and the God in history everywhere pronouncing the doom of those nations which frame mischief by law and revel in selfishness and blood. So, that's a quite a long list, right? And in this list, Douglas lines, um, lines up two sides, right? On one hand you have slavery and all of the sort of inhuman and monstrous qualities is what, that he's using to describe. And on the other hand, you have liberty, goodness, justice, and progress. Uh, and in this sort of high-minded rhetoric, because that's what this is, right? He's dealing in absolutes here, good and evil, right and wrong. This is very much a moral argument. But it's a moral argument that's underpinned by uh, some sort of pragmatic concerns. Look at the line, reducing the importance of mere brute force to nothing in comparison with intellectual power. What he's arguing there is that slavery isn't necessary. <laughs> that brute force, that uh, forced labor, which is what slavery is, uh, is no longer, uh, is nothing in comparison with intellectual power. So this idea that uh, it's no longer necessary, that it's, there is a better way. There's a, a different kind of labor, a better labor that is superior. Remember we talked about the distinctions between uh, the economies of the Union and the Confederacy, uh, the sort of agriculturally labor-based economy of the southern states versus the uh, mechanized, industrialized uh, economies of the northern states. And here he's couching that economic difference as a kind of moral difference. One way is enlightened, bent on freedom and intellectual uh, achievement. The other way is uh, dark and barbarous and cruel. This mixture of sort of moral impetus and sort of pragmatic appeal uh, it also sort of casts the sort of the North, the Union States, in in a very favorable, very uh, altruistic, um, and sort of exalted light. The reality of life uh, in Northern states is is not quite that clear cut, right? We'll talk a lot uh, as this semester goes on about the reality of kind of um, and the literature around the reality of of industrialization and. Um, and that kind of enlightened uh, labor, etc. But here you can see the rhetoric um, really digging down and drawing a bright line uh, that the rights that the states want uh, is slavery, that it's an all or nothing um, proposition. You can either perpetuate the system, uh, the system of immeasurable wickedness and numberless crimes or destroy the government. And this is not an uncommon concern. Abraham Lincoln, when he was running for president, uh, said a house divided against itself cannot stand. It has to be either all one thing or all the other. And the problem is, of course, um, that sort of touches off the, the states' rights, i.e. Uh, slavery argument, 
is that as new slaves or new states uh, enter the Union, as the United States sort of goes on this imperialistic expansion, uh, including more and more states as it conquers more and more territories, conquers, acquires more and more territories, the balance is shifting. Uh, and so some of the new, use, new territories allow slavery, others don't. And the slaveholding states are worried that should the balance in government tip outside of their control, they themselves will also have to get rid of slavery. And they don't want to. So here we go. And here Douglas is putting it in very stark terms. Slavery is the disease, and its abolition in every part of the land is essential to the future quiet and security of the country. Any union which can possibly be patched up while slavery exists must either com completely demoralize the whole nation, remain a heartless form, disguising under the smiles of friendship a, a vital, active, and ever-increasing hate, sure to explode in violence. It is a matter of life and death. Slavery must be all in the union, or it can be nothing. So... All or nothing, this or that, us or them. You can see, again, the real power and passion and sort of bright lines that are being drawn here. The other sort of precursor text um, that sort of deals with the idea of slavery and belonging and, uh, and who gets to count as a person with rights and who doesn't uh, is a speech from Sojourner Truth. Um, and uh, this is one of the first texts that I ever read in an American literature class, and it has stuck with me uh, for, for many years. I'm not telling you guys how many, but many years. Um, because in this speech, she's reckoning with not just the idea that... Um, there's tension between uh, the idea of who counts as human and who can, and whether um, and what rights black people should have or not have, but also uh, with this the dynamic of gender, and she's conflating um, the the way women are defined and the sort of weaknesses assigned to women uh, and the lack of rights that women have and the lack of ability attributed to women to um, she, she was drawing attention to that, uh, to draw attention to the fact that there's a difference, too, in the way uh, black women and white women are treated. That man over there says women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over mud puddles or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me, look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I've borne 13 children and seen most all sold off to slavery. And when I cried without my, with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? So what she points out here is the reality and this sort of distinction between the notions of gendered experience and the reality of what it is to be enslaved, what it is to be a black woman, and how different that is from the sort of idealized version of white 
femininity. Now, you might wonder why she is making this argument at all. Interestingly, white women, white northern women, were among the most vocal and early abolitionists uh, in the United States. And it wasn't all altruism on their parts. White women used the sort of rhetoric of slavery to push back against the limitations on their own rights, uh, that not having the right to vote or own property was a kind of enslavement. And they often gained opportunities, white female abolitionists, that they wouldn't have had in other places and at other times, uh, such as of like the Grimke sisters, some two famous female abolitionists who were able to travel the country to make their own money to publish because they were speaking on abolitionist causes. And they did that uh, and they would not have been able to do that without the, uh, the, the sort of mantle of advocacy they'd claimed for themselves. So this is a particularly fraught relationship. You'll notice that one of the texts we are not reading uh, for this class and for this moment on precursors is Harriet Beecher Stowe's um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And while it is a hugely influential text, uh, it is a very good example of the sort of white woman abolitionist sort of perspective on what slavery was and what the black experience was. And it has very little uh, to do with an authentic portrayal. Uh, or understanding of the uh, characters it describes, and a lot to do with um, a kind of sentimentalized, sort of institutionalized, um, and very, in its own way, racist uh, understanding. So it is a useful document to look at how, sort of, by our modern standards, limited the uh, the abolitionist, the sort of equal rights, uh, equality, pers perspective of equality was uh, among many Northern abolitionists, many Northern women abolitionists, of whom Harriet Beecher Stowe is arguably one of the most famous. However, it's a voice that has been heard quite a lot in history, and it's not a voice that we're privileging here. We are looking at uh, this speech and this sort of excerpt because I think it draws into uh, into focus the sort of intersection between racial and gender dynamics and the different understandings that are being brought to bear. So there you go. While we're looking at precursors, I want to look at one more specific historical event, and that would be the events at Harper's Ferry. Uh, and in brief, in 1859, an abolitionist uh, named John Brown took a group of armed men to Harper's Ferry in Virginia with weapons to try to start a slave uprising. They took hostages, uh, and the idea was that the enslaved uh, population of Harper's Ferry would also take up arms and they would start the rebellion that would, that would kick off the end of slavery. However, uh, everything went wrong quite quickly, and the U.S. Army which was led by then Colonel Robert E. Lee, and the, the contingent of the U.S. Army, and you know, this sort of history is everywhere, uh, quickly put down the uprising, and uh, Brown was handed to the state of Virginia to be tried for treason. Uh, he was convicted and hung. And what happened after the events of Harper's Ferry 
was uh, it justified. It was used as sort of inciting event for a lot of militant rhetoric uh, from the South because there was this very real attack. Uh, they were able to create a lot of support for an understanding of abolitionists as violent and uh, violent insurrectionists. And that ended up in um, inciting the creation of a number of militias, uh, which sort of independent groups of armed which, uh, personnel, which lay the groundwork for what became the Confederate Army. So the attack on Harper's Ferry is one of those pivotal moments that everyone had an opinion about. Uh, the way it happened, uh, the way it was handled, John Brown's cause, John Brown's tactics, but especially John Brown's death, uh, John Brown's um, execution, it turned him into a villain uh, and a rallying cry uh, in the southern states. It turned him into a martyr to, to many abolitionists uh, and, and sort of became part of the anti-slavery sentiment for many northerners. So uh, if you look at the literature of this period, you see that this is one of those current events that uh, writers sort of had opinions about, uh, and they would inscribe those opinions into uh, their texts. So uh, Herman Melville, for example, called Brown the meteor that foretold the war, the sort of portent. Uh, Henry David Thoreau painted him as a martyr. William Lloyd Garrison said, in firing his gun, John Brown has merely told what time of day it is. It is high noon, thank God. And uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson compared him to Christ. So on one side, a martyr, on the other side, a villain. And this idea, in, on either side, the idea is sort of um, rooted in this example that it's going to come to violence. So two of the texts, the other texts that you read for today, uh, are directly about or drawn from uh, the events at Harper's Ferry. After John Brown's death, he became it, the, the story of that death uh, became a folk song, and you can hear that song uh, if you go if you look at the text. I've produced part of it here. Uh, John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. Is the uh, but his soul goes marching on. So he's a martyr here. Uh, he's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord, and soldiers uh, sang this song, particularly Union soldiers started singing the song after the uh, Civil War had started uh, because, you, as you can see, uh, Brown had gone from person uh, to, uh, to sort of avatar, to uh, either hero, villain, um, a kind of cultural linchpin. So how you feel about Brown tells you how you sort of feel. It, it becomes a touchstone for how you feel about uh, larger issues and how you sort of understand your place uh, and your society in the 19th century. And I bet if you think about it for a second or two, you can think of a several such touchstones uh, that sort of define uh, 21st century American life. It doesn't necessarily have to be a particular person, but think of a slogan, an idea, an event, a person. Uh, you can, that is a kind of cultural touchstone or flashpoint. That is what Brown became. And so you have this song. This, the lyrics were sort of overlaid onto a much older folk song. 
And then uh, one of the most popular texts of the uh, Civil War, pop, one of the most popular sort of hymns, so you go from sort of folk song here to hymn, uh, is the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Look at that, think about that title. Go from John Brown's Body to the Battle Hymn of the Republic, same tune. Uh, Julie Ward Howe, who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic, uh, suppose, or the story goes, she heard soldiers singing this song, a Massachusetts regiment singing this song, uh, and she went to sleep and woke up with these lyrics set to that song, to the, the same tune as John Brown's Body, uh, and that, that became the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And you can see in John Brown's Body, the language is about Brown's martyrdom, about how he dies and now he's a soldier in the army of the Lord. In the Battle Hymn of the Republic, you don't have a single story, a single soldier, uh, a, sing a single martyr. You have uh, Christ himself. And in the Battle Hymn of the Republic, the idea is that God is on the side of the Republic, of the Union, and that he himself is, is on the battlefield, is fighting, is marching. I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. And you can look at the last stanza. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. And he died to make men holy. Excuse me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free while God is marching on. So here you can see the escalation of the religious language, of the holiness of the cause. And now it's not an individual endeavor, it's a national one. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make them free, to make men free. So the cause of the union is abolition, it's freedom, and it's worth dying for. Dying in the service of this war is the same as dying like Christ for humanity. So for a predominantly Christian country, you can't really get a sort of higher, um, a higher call, a sort of more holy destiny. And you can see that mapped onto the language and onto the tune itself. So you can go from historical event to guiding ethos. And it's a really interesting trajectory. And a really good example of this sort of why um, new historicism and this idea of cultural criticism and looking at time period and connections can be so rewarding, right? We can look at the story and we can see uh, of John Brown and the sort of texts that came uh, out after it and see the sort of evolution of a legend and this sort of uh, grafting on of sentiment and purpose. And that's, I think, really rewarding and a really good way to help us understand um, how literature is working and, and sort of what it is chronicling. Okay. The other text that I gave you guys to read this week that talks about that sense of, um, of purpose, of, of sort of what, uh, what, is, what is sort of good and, and necessary and, and, and righteous about the war uh, is in this letter uh, written by Sullivan Ballou. Uh, and posted, or is dated July 14th, 1861. And it's a letter from Ballou, who was serving in the Union military, to his wife. 
uh, and it's a beautiful letter. Uh, and it talks about the tension, as you know, because you've all read it carefully. I, I'm picturing you all nodding reassuringly at me now. Yes, you absolutely have. Excellent. Okay. I'll read it carefully. But so as you know, it's a letter that's balancing how much he loves his wife and how much he misses her with how much he feels uh, called to and tied to his duty as a, as a soldier. And he says uh, here on slide 23, I have an excerpt for you. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how strongly American civilization now leans on the triumph of government and how great a debt we owe, debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and sufferings of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence could break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me unresistibly on with all these chains to the battlefield. So love of country, um, an obligation of duty. Uh, you can't be, in, in Baloo's letter, he's, he's arguing that he loves his wife in these sort of un, un, in terms of these kind of unbreakable bonds, but he owes his country. He owes uh, the, those who went through the revolution. He owes this sort of idea uh, of liberty, justice, what it is to be American. He owes that his life. So again, you get this kind of language of higher calling and this idea that in order for the American experiment to be, uh, to be validated, in order to have uh, the 4th of July, in order to have all of that sort of understanding, that ethos, that Americanness, you have to die for it. You have to be willing uh, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain the government and to pay that debt. It's also really interesting here that he's using the language of bonds uh, and being bound to something. Love binds me with mighty cables. He talks about chains, being chained to the battlefield. So uh, there's a kind of um, imprisonment might even say enslavement to these ideas, these different types of love and these different types of causes. And it's really interesting to see that uh, in the language of a soldier. Now, as you'll know, if you read uh, beyond just the text of the letter, uh, and it's always a good idea to do that, please always do read footnotes and uh, in historical context, uh, Baloo never lived to, to, marry, to, to mail that letter to his wife. He died a week after writing it. And in fact, it was never posted. It was only recovered after his things were sent back to, uh, to Rhode Island. Uh, if you were even more interested, his wife never remarried. She lived to be 80 years old. They are buried together. Uh, but he did die a week after sending that. So if you look at the texts, that we that the, the texts that we looked at this week are just a very small selection of all of the other sort of writings and um, and and in sort of production of um, and, they, and this kind of cut across a swathe of of different possibilities, different valences, private letters, public speeches, poems, songs. Uh, but you can see in these texts how the sort of cultural consciousness. Uh, is shaping itself, is evolving, and is expressing itself um, through these concepts and through this rhetoric, which is really interesting. So in the next part, the next and final part, yes, I know, hang in there, 
kind of talk a little bit more about um, about some of these other texts. All right, everyone, for the last section of our lecture today, we're going to talk about the cost of the Civil War um, in this time in, in this particular section. And we're talking about the cost, not economically, but in sort of uh, life and and suffering and experience. So this section of your slides starts with slide number 24. On slide 25, you can see perhaps the most famous, if not one of the most famous, if not the most famous text uh, from the Civil War, and that's the Gettysburg Address. Chances are you've heard this somewhere before. Four score and seven years ago. That sound familiar? Again, the rhetoric here uh, will sound familiar to you, will look familiar to you, based on what we've read uh, so far for this week. That first starts with this idea uh, of what it means to be American, uh, this founding fathers, this idea of liberty. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether the nation, or any nation so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. Uh, the Gettysburg Address was held on uh, what had been the battlefield, Gettysburg, one of the most costly battles of the Civil War in terms of human life, uh, that was becoming a cemetery. And uh, Lincoln references that in that speech. He says, We've come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, but in a larger sense we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. Uh, the brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. Um, it is us, it is, so he talks about how uh, we can dedicate this cemetery, we can consecrate it, we can, we can say this is now holy ground, but the deaths, the people who've died here, have already done so. Their death is more consecration uh, than anything that the living can say. And so what the living needs to do is to dedicate itself to the unfinished work. Uh, it is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take inc the increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave their last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. This nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. So here, the argument is that the dead have already paid the highest price. They have uh, acquired the highest honor, and the living are indebted to those who have died. They must carry on. This speech uh, is a masterpiece of classical rhetoric. So rhetoric is persuasive writing. Classical rhetoric uh, is, a, is a collection of strategies and techniques uh, for creating persuasive speech. One of those, um, one of the sort of mainstays of classical rhetoric is something called parallelism. 
where you use phrases of the same length with similar structure in order to create repetition. And that repetition layers these similar meanings and uh, packs more of a punch. So that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and the government of the people, by the people, for the people. So you can see how every iteration of that phrase sort of digs in another nuance of the people, by the people, for the people. Uh, by the time you get to shall not perish from the earth, it, you, it has been sort of attached to and invested in these people in every way possible. And so the Gettysburg Address is a commemoration uh, that ties the righteous cause to uh, a kind of, uh, forgive the phrasing here, but to a kind of sunk cost uh, uh, um, ideology, this idea that so many have been lost, so many have died, uh, and, and the cause is not yet won, that the living can only do, the only thing that they can in good conscience do is, is keep going uh, because of how many have been lost and because of what they were fighting for. So uh, it's a powerful, although short speech. And if you were wondering how many have been lost, uh, please check out slide 26 here. Uh, more than 3 million men fought in the Civil War and 2% of the population, more than 620,000 people, uh, died in it. So um, it's a lot. It, it, it's a lot, a lot. Um, I, I think if you're, lo you're looking at a population, remember at the beginning of the lecture, we talked about the 9 million people in the South, the uh, 31 million people. It's not much, right? This, the, there aren't that many people in the United States relative to the number there are now. Uh, and these, these numbers, the men who fought, the people who died, uh, it's a lot. 2% of, of the population is deeply significant. Uh, and as you can see in this image here, uh, those who fought, there were many who were wounded who didn't die. And the uh, process of Civil War medicine, the sort of prognosis, the experience, the aftermath uh, is grim in and of itself. While there are all these technological advances, normal, uh, most sort of noticeably with weaponry, uh, better cannons, better cannonballs, better bullets, better guns, the effect of those uh, advancements wasn't always, was, was stark and, uh, the me and medical practice didn't, didn't keep up uh, as well with those advancements. So one of the most common medical procedures uh, in the Civil War was amputation. Many, many soldiers lost limbs, uh, so many, in fact, that they used to have uh, in the years following the Civil War, have things like penmanship competitions for uh, veterans who'd lost their dominant hands, so they could uh, earn prize money by showing how well they'd learned to write with their non-dominant hands, uh, and there was a booming business in uh, artificial limbs, so amputation uh, was was common, uh, but not at all safe. There, were no there was no sterilization, no, wide no, no widespread availability of uh, soap uh, or um, clean bandages. So uh, infection, gangrene, blood poisoning, all of this is very, very common. And there are no, there's no widespread hospital system set up to take care of the wounded. So 
uh, churches, schools, private residences became hospitals depending on where battles were raging and people who weren't fighting, um, uh, people, uh, men who were over or under the, uh, the age to fight, although under, mm, uh, toward the end of the war, it, there really wasn't an under. There were drummer boys uh, nine years old, uh, but over and, and for, for women, uh, the working in hospitals and among the wounded uh, was, uh, was, was an occupation, a necessary occupation. So, um, you know, in the early days of the war, women knitted bandages and sort of, uh, and, and, and sort of worked to that. The advancement of nursing, uh, Florence Nightingale, the idea of, of a career that can be made uh, in, or a, a calling for women as sort of advancement there. That's another complicated, interesting story. Uh, but the, the re underlying reality of the wounded, um, of the Civil War and the kind of convalescence and hospitalization was uh, gory, graphic, uh, and often sort of presented those who saw it with the horrors of war uh, in a way that was much more tangible, much more real uh, than the photographs that we discussed last time. So with that in mind, I want to talk about The Wound Dresser, which was the 1865 poem by Walt Whitman. Uh, Whitman Whitman is an interesting figure, interesting poetic figure. Like Emily Dickinson, he is considered a transformative poet of the 19th century, mostly because he followed none of the rules that most poets followed in the 19th century. You can see from his poetry here, this is a pretty good example. He doesn't write like Dickinson. The only thing they have in common is that they broke a lot of rules. Uh, but he does, he does uh, find, he, he finds himself at different times in his poetic career, expressing um, different sentiments. And Whitman had strong abolitionist convictions. He also had strong nationalist um, tendencies. He believed very strongly uh, at points in his life in the United States in this idea of kind of a manifest destiny. Uh, o Pioneers is an interesting poem to check out from that perspective. And he initially believed very strongly in the sort of uh, patriotic duty of the war his big fan is Abraham Lincoln. You can read, Oh Captain, My Captain, uh, as, a, as a sort of famous eulogy. Uh, here, I'm reading, is The Wound Dresser, and it talks, it's from the perspective of someone working uh, in, a, in a battlefield hospital, which is an experience that Whitman himself had, uh, something he did in his life. Um, he didn't fight in the war, but he did uh, serve as a volunteer in hospitals. Now, always have the caution to make distinctions between the author of a piece and the speaker of a piece. So the character in this poem is not necessarily Whitman himself, but it is uh, informed by his own experiences. So if we look at this poem, the first stanza kind of gives us the narrator's persona. As an old man, excuse me, an old man bending, I come among new faces, years looking backward, resuming an answer to children. Come tell us, old man, as from young men and maidens that love me. Aroused and angry, I thought to beat the alarm and urge relentless war. But soon my fingers failed me, my face drooped, and I resigned myself to sit by the wounded and soothe them, or silently watch the dead. Years hence of these scenes, of these furious passions, these chances of unsurpassed heroes, was one side brave? The other was equally brave. 
Now be witness again. Paint the mightiest armies of earth, of those armies so rapid, so wondrous, what saw you to tell us. What stays with you latest and deepest, of curious panics, of hard-fought engagements or sieges tremendous, what deepest remains? So here you see that transition between uh, the urge for war, the being a champion of war, and uh, the, which is how our sort of speaker starts here, and the calling instead to sit by the wounded and soothe them, and the story of uh, the, the idea of heroism and, and it's sort of melded into was one side brave, the other was equally brave. So the story he ends up telling is not the story he expects to be telling, and it's a story about bravery, uh, but it's a story about uh, the wounded and dying. And as the poem progresses, you get increasingly graphic descriptions of what it is to, to be that kind of caretaker, to be in that kind of environment. So uh, look at the excerpt on slide 28, for example. Bearing the bandages, water and sponge, straight and swift to my wounded I go. Where they lie on the ground after the battle brought in, where their priceless blood reddens the grass, the ground, or to the rows of, of the hospital tent, or under the roofed hospital, to the long rows of cots up and down each side I return. To each and all one after another I draw near, not one do I miss, an attendant follows holding a tray, he carries a refuse pail, soon to be filled with clotted rags and blood, emptied and filled again. So the wound dresser, the persona he's taking on, uh, is going on, going with bearing bandages, water, and sponge. So he's, uh, and you can see him, you can see in this stanza, you can see how many wounded there are. Um, they're all lying on the ground in the hospital, long rows of cots. Um, so there aren't enough, there are long rows of cots, but there aren't enough spaces. There are people lying on the ground. There's blood everywhere. Their blood, priceless blood reddens the grass, the ground. Um, and the, in the aftermath in sort of is a refuse pail, soon to be filled with clotted rags and blood, emptied and filled again. So this process uh, is in scale, very daunting, right? There are all these wounded, um, the process, uh, and there's blood everywhere. Um, so there's bleeding, there's loss, there's this task to dress wounds, to clean wounds, uh, that is, is um, so, so massive in scope, and, and in the process and the repetition, all this priceless, uh, precious blood is everywhere. And you can see that uh, even more graphically as the poem goes on. Uh, Slide 29, some more record. From the stump of the arm, the amputated hand, I undo the clotted lint, remove the slow, it's the skin, loose skin, wash off the matter and blood. Back on his pillow, the soldier bends with curved neck and side-falling head. His eyes are closed, his face is pale. He dares not look upon the bloody stump and has not yet looked on it. So here we're starting to get catalogs of specific wounds and the soldier who's had his hand amputated can't look at uh, the stump that remains uh, front in of you know, what's left of his hand. Um, and you get this again, graphic imagery of, of what that looks like, what that cleaning process looks like. You go on, address a wound in the side, deep, deep, but a day or two more, for see the frame all wasted and sinking, and the yellow-blue countenance see. Uh, when he says, I dress a wound in the side, deep, deep, uh, but a day or two more, but a day or two more, he means but a day or two more until this person dies. Uh, Perceal the frame 
all wasted and sinking. Their, the bo their body is shutting down. Uh, countenance is face, so uh, his face is changing color. Uh, his body is atrophying. This person is uh, will only live for another day or two. Uh, next example. Address the perforated shoulder, the foot with the bullet wound. Cleanse the one with a gnawing and putrid gangrene, so sickening, so offensive, while the attendant stands behind beside me holding the tray and pail. Yeah, okay, so increasingly graphic, right? I dress the perforated soldier, or excuse me, shoulder, uh, perforated uh, the foot with the bullet wound, cleanse the one with gnawing and putrid gangrene, so sickening. Uh, same tray, same pail, everything is going into this. Um, this is part of the process. Uh, so graphic, um, so much damage. And that's what this poem does, is it sort of catalogs in, in, with increasing scrutiny uh, from that sort of idealistic to the, to that, um, to the, the reality, which is uh, at best sort of this crippling, literally crippling loss, and at worst, imminent death. So uh, The Wound Dresser is a poem very much about the experience of the Civil War, uh, and it deals with ideas, at least initially, of cause and, um, and, and, and righteousness, but it also, and much more intensely, deals with aftermath and um, experience and the, and the very real cost, the very real physical cost uh, of the war for the people who are fighting it and dying in it. And it brings home for readers uh, not the sort of idealism, the stakes, uh, but the, the sort of human loss uh, behind it or on the uh, other side of it. So, and again, very graphic, very bloody. The last poem I want to look at with you guys today is actually the poem I asked you to look at um, for your first participation assignment, your week one participation assignment. And um, you can find that on slide 30 here. And I haven't had a chance yet to read everyone's analysis of um, this poem. This is Emily Dickinson's poem. The name of it is Autumn. Uh, and But the examples I've seen so far, you guys have correctly identified that this is about uh, leaves, at least explicitly. The, uh, the idea is uh, we're looking at autumn leaves, how red they are, uh, and how they sort of fall uh, from the trees. It sprinkled with bonnets far below. It gathers ruddy pools that eddies like a rose away. So you have this sort of idea of um, red leaves, autumn, this, this very vibrant, very beautiful New England experience. Um, when we talk about metaphors, we, we talk about tenor and vehicle. And we'll do this more later on in the semester. But the idea is there's the thing that is being described. And then there's the uh, the metaphor, the image that it's that's sort of being evoked alongside that literal object. And I'm going to suggest to you, in the context of the poem that we just read, and in the understanding of the sort of context uh, of 19th century life right now, that you can read this poem uh, and read the, its chosen metaphor as, as symbolic, right? There are a lot of ways to describe red, uh, but it's very telling that the one that Dickinson chooses, the first digit, the name of it is Autumn, the hue of it is blood, an artery upon the hill, a vein along the road. So the landscape is being given a literal body here, right? Blood, 
uh, arteries and veins that conduct blood. But if we can see it, the blood is outside the body. The body, we're still getting that blood imagery. Great globules, so globule, a unit, a sort of cohered um, blood comes in globules. Oh, the shower of stain when the winds upset the basin and, and spill the scarlet rain. So upset the basin. A basin is a container, uh, right, for water. Think about the wound dresser and the basin, sort of this idea of a sort of bloody cloth. Um, so you get this very bloody, very graphic, very, um, very almost... Almost, it's sort of almost decimating imagery, right? Where the landscape is this body that's bleeding, that's veins are exposed, that has these globules and stains. Uh, so it's a very um, graphic, very sort of exposed way to think about autumn. And it might be worth overlaying that uh, imagery, that metaphor, with the sort of understanding of, of how literal human bodies are, are sort of coming apart. Uh, in landscapes, in these battlefields, etc. So again, uh, even texts that are not explicitly about a particular battle event, etc., are still potentially informed by the sort of cultural context and understanding. And we can see sort of these subliminal reminders of what uh, your everyday reality has become at this point, uh, and how. Uh, it might change how historical events uh, might change the lenses through which people see things and the metaphors through which they understand them. All right, you guys, that's going to do it for the lecture this week. Next week, we'll start talking about the literature in the aftermath of the Civil War during the Reconstruction era and some of the trends to come out of it. Uh, you'll be thinking about Melville's poem, uh, in your week two participation assignment. If you have any questions or concerns about the assignment, about any of the readings, uh, about the lecture materials, about anything, uh, please let me know. Otherwise, that'll do it for today. And I will talk to you guys more next week.